Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Waiting for answers on the economy, on Russia and Ukraine, on COVID, and of course, on the Fed. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. So far, 2022 has given us more questions than it has given us answers. As U.S. CPI numbers this week came in even higher than expected, an annual rate of 7.5%. That's the highest in 40 years. Continuing to press the all-important question of whether we've overheated the economy with all that fiscal stimulus. And if so, whether we can bring it off the boil without doing serious damage. With Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley saying that is the big question. This is the $64 trillion question. How much tightening can the Fed actually do um, if growth is slowing? And for all the high-level diplomacy this week gave us no real answers about Ukraine, with President Putin insisting he has not decided to invade and is willing to keep talking, while German Chancellor Schultz visited President Biden and came out saying Germany stood with the West when it comes to potential sanctions, although he didn't say what exactly everyone was united on. We are acting together. We are absolutely united and we will not taking different steps. We will do the same steps and they will be very, very hard to Russia and they should understand. And when it came to COVID, the answers we got were a mixed bag with a range of governors easing off on mask mandates, including Governor Kathy Hochul of New York. At this time, we say that is the right decision to lift this mandate for indoor businesses and let counties, cities and businesses to make their own decisions on what they want to do. At the same time that Rochelle Walensky of the CDC was saying it recommends keeping the masks on. 
At this time, we continue to recommend masking in areas of high and substantial transmission. Um, that's much of the country right now in public indoor settings. And what did all of this mean? Well, in the markets, it made for a truly wild week, starting with three days of relative hope and calm, followed by two days of real turmoil. As CPI numbers on Thursday drove yields up and stocks down, with the yield on the two-year rocketing up 30 basis points on Thursday alone only to have National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan come out Friday afternoon to warn that a Russian invasion of Ukraine could be imminent, despite what President Putin has been saying, which drove people back into bonds at the same time they continued to sell their stocks, which took the 10-year yield back down under two again, and sent the S&P 500 and NASDAQ sharply down, while Brent crude climbed over $95 a barrel for the first time since 2014. So where did we end up when the dust settled more or less. The yield on the 10-year was back down to 1.9, just about where it started the week, actually, while the S&P 500 was off 1.8%, and the Nasdaq was down almost 2.2% for the week. To take us through this very difficult week in the markets, we welcome now Afsani Beshla, CEO of Rock Creek, and Rick Reeder, BlackRock CIO for fixed income and head of the global allocation team there. So, Rick, I'll start with you. And a week full of surprises for most of us. What surprised you the most? What was the biggest surprise? That two-year move on Thursday? <laughs> it's hard to count it up. Actually, if you go back to last Friday, we got the payroll report. You got a blockbuster payroll report. That was surprising in that you think about during Omicron, how many people could we hire? And you got this explosive number. Then the CPI report, as you said, which was a bit surprising. And we're moving away from reopening components driving inflation. It was pervasive across the board. And then the volatility that we just got today uh, in and around the Ukraine situation. So, boy, this was, you talk about tumultuous weeks. This was, uh, this will go down in the Hall of Fame as, uh, as one of them. And Asani, what did you make of all of it? I agree with Rick. It's hard to say that one event was uh, was more turbulent than the other. And as you said, to top it off was the news about Russia, uh, which uh, which impacted everything again drastically. Rick, when it comes to inflation, what's causing it in your estimation? Because what's causing it will directly affect what we should do about it. You know, David. I mean, there is. I mean, clearly the demand function in the system is high. But what what's but more than that. You've got a supply set of supply components that is pretty dramatic today. I mean, obviously, you got the supply chain shocks. You know, you look at components like rent, where there's just not enough inventory today. That's creating some of it, some of this dynamic. You know, obviously, commodities, oil input costs, and so you've got a cross the board set of influences that that's probably going to stick with us for a period of time. I do think you're going to come down in the second uh, second half of the year. By the way, there's something, I was just looking at the University of Michigan data that came out. It was the worst sentiment reading in 10 years. And when you look at things like time to buy a home or attractiveness to buy a home or a car, it's plummeting. So there's a really interesting dynamic at play. Prices are moving higher. It's dulling consumer sentiment, which will re which is again, why I think you'll see some shifting over the next few months away from these, these price increases are causing people to say, step back and say, gosh, I'm gonna wait for a bit of time. Rick, I was going to ask you, um, if you listen to Cecilia Rouse or others in the administration, the assumption was by the end of this year, in, the inflation rates could be about half of what they we started the year. Do you think we will end up the year at three to four percent or do you think we'll be closer to five? You know, when we when we do run all our analytics and we look at all the quantitative data that gets into it, we actually have it coming down to core PCE, depending on how you measure it, core PCE, core CPI 
we have coming down to around three. There's a few few factors at play. One of the big one is the base effects. You know, when you look at year on year, that one will start to start to kick in. Some of the supply chain dynamics come off, and then um, and uh, as well as you would think that commodity prices will start to peak. So there's a series of factors that that will bring it down. The thing that is pretty incredible, things like rent are hard to bring down because the inventory dynamic. The other one that you know is going to continue to be with us is wages continue to accelerate. So listen, I think they're going to be sticky higher, but if you quantitatively, um, it does suggest we're going to come down significantly by year end. Okay, Rick Reeder of BlackRock and of Saudi Bechelas of Rock Creek will be staying with us as we go on to continue to talk about this really wild, chaotic week in the markets. We're going to talk about liquidity and also, by the way, we better get back to Ukraine. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We are back with our roundtable of Rick Reeder of BlackRock and of Sunday Bechelis of Rock Creek. We're going to continue talking about this truly extraordinary week in the market. So, Rick, I want to come back to you on something you've talked about repeatedly in the past, and that's liquidity and the effect of liquidity or lack of liquidity in the marketplace. Where are we in liquidity right now? How much of some of the volatility are we seeing is because people are withdrawing liquidity? Uh, yeah, David. I mean, that that is part of why these markets are so volatile. There is no conviction in today's markets. And so what happens is markets tend to, uh, we always look at top of the book liquidity, meaning in the equity market, how much can you execute at a price? And in much of the time this week, it was a couple of million dollars worth. That, that number is usually many, many multiples of that. What happens is people, when you get all of these ambiguous, ambiguous indicators, where is growth going to be? How aggressive the Fed going to be? Gosh, now I just threw Russia, Ukraine into the equation. The liquidity in the markets go away, and part of why the market, the liquidity in the markets go away. People always think about what's working in my portfolio. 
what's working as a hedge. And you think about what's happened this year. Bonds are bonds here, you know, before today, bonds are going down in price, equities are going down in price. What is how do I think about that and how do I think about a hedge? Because you get it, you get something like like the Russia Ukraine thing, and all of a sudden treasuries rally. So whereas I was I worried about interest rates being higher, so you got to be careful about that as a hedge because now now they start to rally. It creates a dynamic in the market. There's not enough conviction. There's not enough hedging ability. There's not enough mitigants to manage risk. So you just got to bring risk down. You got to run smaller position, higher levels of cash, and that means the liquidity in the markets. Because people don't have conviction, because people aren't putting as much money to work, then you have a, a market that is skin deep, and uh, and you got to be really thoughtful about how you want to execute in these markets. Afsani, I wonder about you as an investor, because you invest in the longer term. Uh, it looks like we're going through a change in the paradigm right now, one of a lot of support, monetary and fiscal support for the markets. And it looks like we may be going away from that to neutrality or even some tightening. What does that mean for you as an investor? What are good investments in that climate? What are bad investments? You certainly need to move to more active investment in, uh, in this kind of period. And as Rick said, uh, if we go back to pre-COVID days, we already were having some of these liquidity problems, right? There were, you know, they, that, that was what we used to talk about before COVID. And of course, it's coming back uh, with a vengeance. And so looking forward into the markets, as we're seeing, interestingly, global markets are doing better than the U.S. this year. And even places like Europe and emerging markets, despite all the things that are going on in both um, have been doing much better. Uh, small cap. Um, and then uh, again, I think with what's going on geopolitically, uh, I'm actually bullish on clean energy because people are going to be investing in it as a as a hedge to what is going on in, right in front of our eyes right now. Rick, what about the geopolitics of investing? Uh, we saw, we've seen a pat pattern here of the U.S. being the place to be compared to the rest of the world. A lot of people are expecting as we turn here, it's going to go back to Europe. It's going to go back to emerging markets. There are going to be more, there are better investments there, part because the valuations are lower. And by the way, their monetary policy in a lot of EM countries is quite different. Does this sort of geopolitical conflict have the potential to reverse that? Uh, so I'd, listen, I'd say a couple of things. First of all, this is a pretty complex situation. Your question, Afsani, about, about transitory. My sense is this isn't going to get resolved. There's not going to be uh, a checkered flag of it's, it's, it's uh, free to get to, to move forward. So I think this is going to be, be with us for a period of time. And markets don't like that. Markets like to put things in boxes and understand, like, is the Fed hawkish, dovish? Is the economy good, bad? They just want, they just want to put things in boxes. This won't be able to be put in a box. For a period of time. So, what do you? How do you invest relative to that? Listen, I mean, we we like still investing in the U.S. We definitely believe the growth paradigm is better. You've clearly got a moving Fed, but you've still got so many opportunities, and, and particularly what's happened the last few weeks and things like technology stocks coming under such dramatic pressure. So, we still prefer the U.S. In Europe and parts of emerging markets, there's still opportunities. But you've got to watch this play out for a period of time. So, you know, we, we started to dip our toe into emerging markets, but very, very slowly. And the view was, gosh, we've got some time. A, you need to see where the Fed is going to play out. And B, when you have situations like this, you've just got to be really careful and slow to enter. And, you know, take where, where you think there's convexity to the upside. You think there's real upside. Dip your toe in a little bit. But, uh, but you got to be careful about it because this could take a little bit of time to play through. And definitely, if you have countries that have large amounts of U.S. denominated debt, you know, you want to be careful with those. 
if you have com- countries that are commodity based, you want to be, you know, it, they're, they're more interesting during this period, regardless of, you know, what the commodity is. So you really have to be very actively looking at things. I think the period of passive investing, which we had over the last 10 years, is kind of relatively behind us. It doesn't mean you don't do any passive investing, but active investments become more important as part of your portfolio. So, Rick, let me try to reach beyond my can here. Is it possible that we should have seen through the markets in part some of this coming in what Vladimir Putin has done since 2014, his first invasion of Ukraine, what he's done in this economy in terms of things like dollar denominated debt that Afsani just referred to, his foreign currency reserves, he's got a much stronger position today than he did back in 2014. Yeah, the irony, like you say, David, is the fiscal situation in Russia is uh, arguably better than it's ever been. It's, it's actually arguably one of the best fiscal situations that you see in the world today. And so in a stable environment, you know, investment in Europe makes some sense. The question is today, how long before we see that again? But but you're, you're definitely right. I mean, the fiscal situation is, and it's by, by the way, it's part of why it was one of the darlings for a while. It was the darlings of the emerging market, uh, both currency, interest rates, et cetera. And then, like a, like a lot of things in emerging markets these days, whether it's politics, whether it's fiscal dynamics, yeah. whether whether it's the amount of, as Sonny said, the amount of debt burden, a dollar-denominated debt burden, those things have been shifting around. Despite emerging markets is a, is a good place to invest, but you've got to be deliberate and you've got to be you've got to be well measured in terms of where you're going. Sonny, I hate to keep you short on oil, but how much of this is the price of oil? Because that's really good for Vladimir Putin right now. No question that um, the current. Prices are helping Putin, you know, put away money, but also um, I don't right. think they will last long. You ha- you're going through this right. winter and, you know, you're going to be in March and we're going to be on the other side of it. Uh, very important point from somebody who really knows the oil market very well. Thank you so much to Afsani Beshlas of Rock Creek and Rick Reeder of BlackRock. Really great to have you with us. Coming up, everyone is jumping into the streaming pool, whether it's viewers binge watching at home or media companies investing hundreds of millions of dollars in new content. But is it a good business? And what will it take to win? We asked Kevin Mayer, co-chair of Candle Media. Still a lot of headroom for, for continued investment in content. The appetite from consumers is voracious. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. My Alzheimer's diagnosis was hard to take. But early detection allowed us to take control of the situation together. Talk to your family about seeing a doctor. Go to alz.org slash time to talk. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Video. It's the part of the media we've never been able to resist. And now, through the magic of streaming, we can have access to a virtually unlimited supply of it whenever and however we want. What started with Netflix was supercharged with the addition of big players like Amazon and Disney and a pandemic that forced us to stay home and binge watch. Leading to growth, Jonathan Carson of Antenna says is amazing. The amazing thing that's happening in this market right now uh, is just the acceleration of growth in in subscription streaming in general. But now the question is whether the trees can keep growing toward the sky, with Netflix getting hit hard last quarter for reasons not entirely clear, even to its own CFO, Spencer Newman. You know, we're trying to pinpoint what that is. It's it's tough to say exactly why our acquisition hasn't, you know, kind of recovered to pre-COVID levels. Um, 
It, it's probably a bit of just overall COVID overhang. But whatever hit Netflix has yet to slow down Disney, as it reported higher subscriber growth than anyone expected, and CEO Bob Chapek said he expected more to come. We expect that uh, um, we're going to actually add more subs in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. The one thing we know for certain is that whoever is up or down quarter to quarter, there's a lot of money being invested in a lot of content. Raising the question which companies will prevail and how good a business will streaming end up being. And when it comes to video in the media world, there is no one, and I sincerely mean no one, who knows it better than Kevin Mayer. He is now the co-founder and co-chair of Candle Media. He's also chairman of DAZN. I knew him best back in the Walt Disney Company, where he was head of our strategic planning operation. He was the one who was with Bob Iger through so many of those strategic acquisitions. Kevin, thank you so much for being with us here at Wall Street Week. Let's start with streaming video. You know that so well. You helped amass that really armada of material, the content that Disney has now. We saw Netflix took a bit of a stumble. Disney subscribers, we don't know. They go up and they go down from month to month, quarter to quarter. But overall, are there too many players in this space? Does there need to be some consolidation or shaking out? Well, nice to be here, David. Thanks for having me, as always. It's a pleasure. Um, I would say the streaming, the market for the streaming services on a global basis continues to grow. So I think you're right to point out that some months are higher and some are lower in terms of subscriber growth. And there's something called churn where people, um, subscribers end their subscription either temporarily or permanently. So there's ins and outs of the of the business. Uh, and the U.S. market where, you know, where, where you are and, and I spend most of my time uh, has seen some maturity because these streaming services have been around for a long time. But if you look globally, there are many markets around the world where these uh, streaming services are just being launched or still have a lot of growth in front of them. So I think you'll see on a global basis a fair amount of, uh, of continued uh, steady growth for the leading services. Having said that, yeah, uh, you know, not all of these um, streamers that have pretensions of being a big, global, successful player can make it. You have the big guys. You have Netflix, obviously. Disney Plus is, is already a success. I can't see that being dislodged in any way. HBO Max, you know, Amazon through Prime has hundreds of hundred over 100 million subscribers. So there's the there are big, big players. The question is, on the margin, some of these smaller players who are trying to make headway globally, can they do it? And I think you'll see some consolidation and some people just uh, falling out over time. Thus far, we've seen a sort of a growth industry, and it's an investment phase. People are not talking about profits, making money off of it. They're talking about investing in order to acquire those subscribers you refer to. At some point, there has to be more maturity. Can these enterprises continue to invest in new content at the rate they're investing right now, given uh, the revenue structure? You know, I believe they can. There's still a lot of headroom for, for continued investment in content. Um, Netflix is spending probably almost $20 billion a year on content. I think the Walt Disney Company said in their last earnings that they spend, including sports rights and, and movies and television shows around the world, like $33 billion or something like that. Uh, it's a lot being spent. Uh, the, the appetite from consumers is voracious. Uh, and I think that that will continue for the foreseeable future. It's been double-digit growth in demand for content for these streaming services around the world. Kevin, some people have said that this streaming is sort of like the next thing after cable. We had broadcast, then we had cable, now we have the streaming. But there's one way it strikes me that it might be quite different, and that is how sticky the revenue is. Uh, in cable, as you know, at ESPN, as I recall, those rights agreements could go for multiple years, five, six, seven years. You knew that revenue was coming in. Even in broadcast, 
So much of that's bought, at least for a year, you know it's coming in. Subscribers can come and go month to month. They can, and they do. But again, I think the penetration rates, the overall level of subscriptions, is progressing nicely in almost every territory. Okay, Kevin, I really appreciate spending time with you. It was truly helpful. That's Kevin Mayer of Candle Media. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. The possibility of lung cancer can be pretty scary, especially if you're one of approximately 8 million current or former smokers at high risk. That's why SaveByTheScan.org wants you to know that now there's a breakthrough low-dose CT scan that can detect lung cancer early, and it only takes 60 seconds. You stop smoking, now start screening. For an easy quiz to see if you're eligible, visit SaveByTheScan.org. It could save your life. SaveByTheScan.org is brought to you by the American Lung Association's Lung Force Initiative and the Ad Council. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, and we're delighted to welcome back now our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard, to Wall Street Week. Thank you for being with us once again, Larry. So the big news, the big news this week were those CPI numbers. Consumer price numbers came in 7.5% up year over year. Frankly, one of the things that struck me was durable goods were up 18.4% year over year. You've been talking about this, saying the Fed needs to get on it. Obviously, the Fed is behind it, as you said. The question now is, what do they need to do to catch up? Let me be very, very specific. Should they have a special meeting? David, look, these numbers were in line with the numbers that we've had. I don't understand why people keep being so surprised when there's evidence that uh, inflation is entrenched. This confirms uh, just how far behind the curve uh, the Fed has gotten. 
And this, along with the fact that it now looks like Build Back Better is in trouble, uh, confirms what a serious error the excessive stimulus of last March was. Here's what I think the Fed should do. I think the Fed should have a special meeting right now to end QE. It is nothing short of preposterous that in an economy with 7.5% inflation, in an economy with the tightest labor markets we've seen in more than two generations, that the central bank is still, as we speak, growing its balance sheet. And I think the Fed could show that at last it really gets it by having a special meeting for the purpose of simply ending QE. It's not that the marginal purchases they're going to do over the next month are all that consequential. They're not probably very consequential at all. But I think the symbolism of ending it tomorrow would would show that the Fed has gotten a major uh, wake-up call. What about rate hikes? We also had Jim Bullard, the president of the Kansas City Fed this week, come out and say, look, I think we should raise rates by 100 basis points by June. And by the way, we should not limit it to 25 increments. What about raising rates? Should it be done before the March meeting? And should we be looking at things more than 25 basis point increases? I don't think there's any need to do it before uh, the March meeting. I think the Fed needs to be much more careful about the use of the forward guidance instrument in a world where it has shown itself to be so dismal a forecaster of what's going to happen in the economy. Most of that is not the, most of the poor forecasting is not the Fed's fault. It tracked uh, the consensus and reflects the inherent difficulty of uh, forecasting. But nimble and humble does not mean uh, making announcements about what you're going to do over periods of six months or a year in a highly volatile economy. And the Fed needs to go back to uh, the old ways, which are much more about uh, nimble and uh, nimble and humble. I think it's a close call on uh, the March uh, on the March meeting. Uh, I would be inclined to think that markets are going to increasingly build that in. And if they do, I don't think the Fed should be surprising them on uh, the dovish side. And I don't think the Fed should be trying to guide them to uh, the dovish side. So I think there's a good chance that there's going to be a progression towards uh, near inevitability of uh, the 50 basis points, and if so, that's okay. But if markets don't go that way, I also don't think that is a terrible, uh, a, a terrible thing. Yeah, I should correct myself. Mr. Buller, of course, is president of the St. Louis Fed, not the Kansas City Fed. Uh, at, at the same time, we have some economists coming out and saying, let's be patient, let's not overreact. We had uh, Paul Stiglitz, actually, this week come out and, and say, really, a lot of this will take care of itself. And insofar as it doesn't, instead of contracting demand through tightening monetary policy, we should expand supply through fiscal policy. You tweeted about that and said that that was a sort of wishful thinking. Give us your reaction to the supply versus demand side of the equation. 
Joe Stiglitz is a brilliant Nobel Prize, richly deserved microeconomic theorist. But as a practical, data-driven uh, macroeconomist, he's practicing uh, tooth fairy uh, economics. Of course, it would be wonderful if we could have more cars all of a sudden. Of course, it would be wonderful if the participation rate in the labor force uh, suddenly uh, increased. But here's the, here's the thing. You can only fill water into your bathtub to the size your bathtub is. And demand has got to be constrained by what we know about supply. And the way we tell how demand is doing relative to supply is we look at the behavior of prices. And they, and particularly wages, have been screaming red alert on demand versus supply for months now. And so it's preposterous wishful thinking to somehow suggest that all of a sudden we're going to conjure into being uh, lots more supply. The administration's absolutely doing the right thing with its policies to try to clear things up uh, in uh, the ports and the like. Any bit of mileage we can get in reducing bottlenecks is all to the good. But to somehow suggest that that's going to be our salvation and we don't need to pay attention to uh, the evidence of uh, demand outstripping uh, supply is just uh, complete wishful thinking. Let's talk about Ukraine, that crisis brewing over in Ukraine. There's a lot of talk about sanctions, a wide range of possible sanctions, economic sanctions on Russia, if in fact it does move further into Ukraine. You were Secretary of Treasury, you had to supervise sanctions like that in other parts of the world. Do they work? Sanctions, uh, David, are usually a bad alternative, but they're sometimes uh, the best alternative. There are provocations for which it's just not acceptable to mount no response, and in which it would be catastrophic to mount a kinetic military response, and that's what drives us to uh, sanctions. What I think the Biden administration has been working very well at is trying to make sure that we multilateralize our sanctions. Because often, unilateral sanctions can be a stop or I'll shoot myself in the foot kind of policy, where we sanction the country, it hurts American producers, but it doesn't hurt the country because they're able to get the stuff uh, elsewhere. So sanctions with a multilateral perspective, I think that's probably, the right uh, kind of policy, but I think the devil is in uh, the, uh, the devil's in the details. And I must say, uh, having been critical of them in uh, some areas, this seems to me to be something where so far uh, the Biden administration is proceeding with uh, great skill, care, and uh, Thoughtfulness. Okay, Larry, thank you so very much. It's such a treat to have our special contributor in Wall Street Week, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Uh, Once in a lifetime day, that's what NBC is calling this Sunday because for the first time ever, the Super Bowl will be played during the Winter Olympics. And NBC, let's be honest, could use the help. Given the Olympics ratings so far, they were down over 40% for the opening ceremonies. 
making it hard to cover the nut of the billions of dollars NBC has invested in the Olympics in its multi-year deal. So here comes the Super Bowl with a super matchup of the LA Rams playing in their new home stadium and the Cincinnati Bengals featuring a quarterback who's been in the league only two years. 30-second ads will be going for $6.5 million apiece, and judging from what we saw in the playoffs, a fair number of those spots will be for online gambling. From Eli and Peyton Manning for Caesars. I would have hit him in the numbers, probably. To Jerry Rice for DraftKings. Oh, yes. <laughs> online betting has been exploding in the United States, with 100 million Americans now able to bet legally online. And that certainly includes the Super Bowl, with wagers on the big game expected to exceed $1 billion. Something Commissioner Roger Goodell five years ago resisted, long after other leagues had changed their minds. We have been on the record and, and have actually opposed legalized gambling. We don't think it's in the best interest of the integrity of our game. Well, the times sure have changed. And if you listen to those in the industry, people like Jason Robbins, the CEO of DraftKings, well, they say it's just a matter of convenience. Obviously, there's a lot of great experience in person that you get at a brick and mortar facility. And that's you know, something that'll always appeal to people, I think. But I think there's a lot of benefit also to being able to do things on you know, convenient terms. But others, like former Congressman Bob Goodlatte of Virginia, worry about the damage online gambling could do to people and families. I do not believe gambling is a victimless activity. In fact, I think that online gambling in particular can be more destructive to families and communities of addictive gamblers than if a bricks and mortar casino were built next door. So while SEC Chair Gary Gensler is worried about the gamification of stock trading. We'll also, I think, hopefully uh, be taking up what's called digital engagement practices, what some people call gamification and, and what to do there. How concerned should we be about the gamification of gambling on real games? That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David West, and this is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.